Hello, heroes. I'm Hannah Schaefer. And I'm Evan Rowland. Welcome to Design Doc. The end of the pilgrimage, the Lightbringer, holds still in the sky of the world. It shines down on the Kingdom Argyle, a massive metal temple amidst the other heavenly bodies of the sky, offering light and heat and hope. To ascend to the Lightbringer is to learn how we are limited and how our ancestors were limitless. But what do we know of how the Lightbringer operates? The priest will show you a tome of dark metal pages, complex diagrams, and arcane instructions inscribed in gold. But the workers of the Lightbringer don't use the gilded book. In the thrumming underbelly of the structure, corridors sealed off from pilgrims are chalked with graffiti and makeshift signs. A different sort of holy message can be found here. Shake if noisy. Push back and to the left. Do not touch. Enter Omirin, an enslaved beast of burden cast out of Argyle by its ruling class and forced to live in exile at the far reaches of the kingdom. At the moment, Omirin picked his way through a tangled passage of pipes and crawlways below the Lightbringer. Do not enter, said the sign. He passed by. Turn right around, said another. He ducked under a low-hanging pipe. You shouldn't be here. He pressed on. When Omirin did stop, it was in a dust-covered room lit by the yellow glow of exposed wiring. The walls here were bare, except for a single message in chalk, which simply read, Don't. From behind, the sound of shouts and banging metal echoing from back the way he'd come. Omirin smiled. They're late, he said. Too late. He plunged his hand into the wiring, ripping at the machine's coils with an explosion of sparks and smoke. On the planet below, the beasts of burden were waking to the Lightbringer's dawn, beginning their daily journey to the fields. There, they would tend to the moss that sustained the kingdom. But this morning, the Lightbringer's dawn burned too hot. Its sun rose too fast, too bright. The beasts beheld a rain of fire crashing down from the sky. And like that, the moss was gone. A way of life, reduced in an instant, to simmering embers. Was Omirin a hero? An emancipator? Or were things only about to get worse? So, in our last episode, we spoke about doing custom scenes. And when we were setting up for that playtest, we also made a special scene type called Shooting for Your Goal. This was like in Damn the Man Save the Music, a scene all about just going for your goal and achieving it. This opened up the possibility of players being able to achieve their goal in the first turn of the game. That's the very first thing they did. And so in our first playtest, this actually happened. Yeah, I, I made my character achieve their goal in the first scene because... You know, I'm the I'm the bad playtester who looks for the loophole and tries to exploit it. 
Well, I don't. I think that you're allowed to be as the designer. Yeah. Not if you're playtesting somebody else's game. So I gave it a shot. I made the scene where my character was trying to do a huge goal, change the landscape of the planet, like scorch a whole area to the ground, burn it down and start over. And we played at the first scene and we did the role and the role went well. And it happened. Like a, a part of the planet was scorched in fire as the first act of the game. So the question is, does this work? Is it what we want? It's a question that came up in the previous playtest, or maybe even two playtests back, when we were talking about sort of goal pacing and this idea that you could set a first goal that was like, I want to kill the king. Mm-hmm. So you start off, you create your character, you set your goal, which is, I want to kill the king. In the traditional story arc, that is kind of where your character will end up. Like, your character will spend the entire arc of this story getting to the king's bedchambers or getting into, you know, the exact right position in the tower across from where the royal parade is happening to be able to take the shot. Uh, And that would be sort of your character's final dramatic last scene. And so the question is, like, in Questlandia 2, what happens if that is instead almost like the opening like the introduction to your character. It tells a really different story. Which, you know, on the face of it, I I like. It's cool to have a different kind of story. I'm a narrative hipster, so I'm all about, <laughs> oh, you achieved the quest in the first sentence. So what's the rest of the book going to be about? But role-playing is hard. And scooping away one less skeleton for players to use to structure their scenes, you know, the traditional narrative arc of slowly building up to your quest, having the climax where you find out if you're going to make it, and then resolving from there. Taking that away just adds one more burden to the players of telling a very non-traditional story structure. And I think we still want, I mean, you know, as much as we're trying to break out of certain molds we want Questlandia 2 to have a story, like a narrative arc that feels good. Right. Like the pacing needs to feel good. It should tell a cogent story. And we don't want people to feel like their goals have become less meaningful because they're trying to just like, I kill a king, so what's bigger than that? One big advantage of being able to achieve your goal in scene one is that it makes your goals seem like this very temporary, flexible part of your character. You're not signing up for a whole hero's journey. It could be something you resolve in one or two turns, and then you make a goal that better reflects how you understand your own character and the world you're in. And I like the idea of that. I feel like, you know, when you're first coming up with your character around the table, it's hard to commit to the whole story arc, especially if this is a campaign setting where that might be multiple sessions worth of effort. It's nice to have something that's a little lighter. It gives you a chance to actually get to know your character. And it sort of led to this conversation at the table of like, okay, so now you've suddenly killed the king and you've had a chance to realize that like, that's not actually the destiny for your character. You've come from a long line of chefs 
And really what you've been trying to do is, you know, uh, you've always felt like you are in the shadow of your chef brothers. <laughs> and it's time for you to set out on your true quest, which is to make the world's best marinara. Right. And so you've, you know, you assassinate the monarch on turn one, and then you spend the next, like, year and a half of your campaign trying to find good oregano. And that's, it's like a good thing you got the king out of the way. <laughs> so, yeah, that's true. Uh, because as we all know, oregano is banned in this kingdom. <laughs> so it would have made the quest that much harder. Uh, but it opened up that question for everybody at the table. And uh, Evan and I were like, we don't know. Is that going to be okay? I guess we have to find out. And I would say we, we still haven't found out. More testing needed. But we have a lot of thoughts about how this could work and what's worth preserving about it. Maybe the answer will find a way to take some of our goals with this goal system and put it together in a different way we just haven't figured out yet. So this direction that we're exploring opens up the possibility of going from big goals to small goals, instead of always going from small goals to big goals. In Questlandia 1, it was really a story about people with big goals, like, you know, YOLO, <laughs> live fast, die young, go big or go home. <laughs> right, like eat every turtle in the kingdom. Yeah, <laughs> bye-bye turtles. Like, that is... <laughs> That is what the game was about. Like, your world is collapsing around you, and generally the characters kind of respond to that chaos with their own chaos? I don't know if that's totally accurate. They kinda, it's kind of about people spinning out a little. Yeah, there's definitely some spinning out. It's about people having their their ideas of what they want to do with their future kind of blown up by the collapsing society. If in Questlandia 2, the game opens up this opportunity to be working on these smaller goals, it opens up the potential for stories about people trying to find stability and quiet in a rapidly changing society. Yeah, before the goals of the characters and the goal of the society itself were all sort of on the same level. Big history-shaping kinds of changes where one direction or another is going to, you know, determine the future. And in Quetzlandia too, there's this possibility of having goals that are just utterly detached from the society's hopes, where you're working at a personal level to do your own thing, and it will be interfacing with the society, but not necessarily directly supporting it or opposing it. And we don't even necessarily know yet if this is what we want or if this is the story that we want to tell. It is something that we're going to have to be really careful about because with a campaign game, you know, we do need to find a way to stretch out these big goals. Like if we keep it big, we have to find a way to sort of pace out that drama. And it ties into questions about how we want players to be able to influence the world at all. And whether that's something where it's like, okay, you build up your points, build them up, build them up, now you can change the world. Or the other end where it's just like changing the world's going to happen by accident, you know? You could be just trying to buy some cotton candy and you 
you know, war erupts with another kingdom. <laughs> and those have different flavors of how stable your society is. And also, they can influence how seriously you're taking the setting, too. If it's giving you whiplash, it's changing around so much, and now we're all Draculas, and now the Earth is floating, and now the country is floating off the planet's surface. <laughs> like, these kind of weird escalations lend to a gonzo kind of game, and it's not clear yet how tied up achieving your goal should be with impacting your society as a whole. I think that there's always been a question in Questlandia about what tone we're going for, you know, because obviously I haven't been at the table for every game of the original Questlandia. I get the sense that some of them probably were a little bit more gonzo than we'd intended. Mm -hmm. And I don't think gonzo is what we're going for. I think the best games for me end up... Uh, really striking this sweet spot between kind of an initial world building and character building that can seem quite silly. And then mm -hmm. as you get to know these people, uh, the empathy that you develop for the slug prince, like runs so deep. But it, like it can't, we, we end up, you know, we have to hang on to what makes it earnest. Yeah. And it's something that can't quite be forced either. You can't. It seems backwards to me to insist at character setup, you know, and everybody be real serious. Oh, well, absolutely. Right. I mean, the game the game has to take that responsibility on. It can't ask that of the players. Right. The game can't say like don't don't laugh, don't go gonzo if the game has set up, you know, this uh, structure to do just that. I think original Questlandia was was pretty good at that, you know. I remember playing one where we will we were all microbes in a puddle. We were riding water bears into battle. And it was like a touching, sincere story. <laughs> Can you think of any of the elements of the original that, you know, helped to kind of ground it? I mean, the escalating disaster uh, gave a real sense of consequence to everything that was going on. So, you know, you can be tied up with taming water bears as steeds, but then when there's a societal collapse going on or a food shortage, you know, you just feel a, a, you feel a more serious reality pushing in on you that's encouraging you to engage with it in a serious way. And then, of course, there is this question for us of, like, where where are we in our lives? And how does, how does, like, the current state of the world shape our design? I mean, when we first designed Questlandia and started to talk about Questlandia, it was, like, post-recession. Mm -hmm. We were sort of just starting to come out of the housing bubble. Yeah. We are thinking about joblessness and about peak oil and, you know, what was going to come next for us after graduating from college. Now we're living in Trump's America, where every day there is a Questlandia-level escalating chaos to the point <laughs> that it has entirely lost its meaning. 
it's a risk that we're worried about with the game, and it's something that we are experiencing every day in our real lives. Yeah. Like, no news is shocking anymore. Everything is just, like, a horror of cosmic proportions. And so, like, do we want to tell that story? Or are we, like, burnt out yeah. by living that? So, like, how how is where, where we're at now going to impact our game design? Because it will. Like, we have no control over that. And, you know, to the extent that we do have control, we're welcoming it. You know, the idea is to make a game that sincerely reflects what we care about and what we want to see in the world. And you can't just detach that from reality completely. So the idea of small goals, goals that aren't directly fighting against the culture itself, but are instead in spite of the culture... And, you know, finding a different way to cope or about self-preservation or about probing the weak spots all seem appealing right now as a different way to play. Do you want to bring us into deciding your goal? Sure. All right. So in Questlandia 2, how do players go about deciding their goal? One thing that we're really trying to accomplish in the new version of this game is that, you know, in Questlandia 1, kingdom creation and character creation, like that part of the game, uh, if a group didn't really like put a, you know, tight timeline on it, mm -hmm. it could potentially stretch out into three hours and then they'd have to roll the gameplay part into another session and that was like a thing. And it's a one-shot game. So, you know, if you do three hours of setup and then three hours of like, quote, playtime, eh, that's maybe not the ideal ratio yeah. for a one-shot game. We want the like setup, and I'm, I'm making air quotes here because whatever, I have my own thoughts about like what is setup and what is play. Mm -hmm. That can be a boring bonus episode at some yeah. point. <laughs> um, but... We want this to be even faster than Questlandia 1. Like, that's one part of, that's some feedback that we got. And we're like, agreed, this is going to be a campaign game. And we want Setup to be a freaking breeze. And Setup was one of the most fun parts of Questlandia. Like, it was really great coming up with your kingdom and the details of it and seeing it all take form and having all these random elements come together and start to give a picture of a real place. So we want to keep that, but we want to distribute it forward so that it's a part of the play and not a preface to the play. One thing which I think we've said already is that, you know, this idea of being able to change your goal or even accomplish your goal really quickly uh, relieves some of the burden of that choice. It takes some of the weight off, especially, you know, for somebody who's not sure how they feel about this character or who's maybe a first-time role player. It's like, just pick a goal. Whatever. You want to make a pasta sauce. You want to kill a king. Who cares? If you don't like it, change it. Accomplish it and change it. Or don't accomplish it and change it. I don't think we've gotten that far to, like, don't accomplish it and change it. But this is getting into the idea of taking the decision about a important goal that's going to shape your campaign 
and bringing it out of the initial setup and putting it into the future of play, where you have this sort of temporary training wheels goal, or maybe you have a whole string of these small goals that you're achieving as you work your way towards finding the kind of story you want to tell. So this is leading me to believe that the first goal should always be to escape the castle keep for everyone. Yes. <laughs> the second goal should be like to find a dragon talon mm-hmm. in a dungeon yeah. with this, you know, ultimate overarching goal of like becoming the dragonborn. And there's only one dragon talon, so everybody has to fight over it. <laughs> I'm feeling really good about this direction. I didn't think we were going to go into this podcast and just like, bam, there's the solution. But uh, here we are. Yeah. So it's going to be a shorter episode. <laughs> what are some of the other, I don't know, find 20 gemstones? Yes, 30 bunny tails. <laughs> we will make a necklace. <laughs> My sister, who lives in Mistville, (laughs) has lost her apron. (laughs) I will sew her a new one from the ears of 200 bunnies. (laughs) So, I mean, that's actually, like, that is something that I had not thought of before, is that I don't think I want Questlandia 2 to mimic Skyrim. Oh, that makes one of us. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like Skyrim is great for what it does, but I, I I don't think I want it to feel like that. You know, Skyrim is interesting. Let's talk about Skyrim for okay. an hour. This two. actually yeah. we're just we have we usually do pretty like good notes for our podcast. Skyrim is not something we wrote down. So we are totally off script right now. Alright, let's let's improv on Skyrim a little. <laughs> okay. So one thing about Skyrim is that you go into this world and you learn very quickly that there's a civil war going on in this land. There are two factions. One of them is about to behead you. Another one attacks them. That's the opening scene of the game. Mm-hmm. Then come dragons. After that, that civil war feels like an afterthought. It's all about the character goals, which are shifting constantly in that game. Picking from flowers. Chasing a butterfly. the wings off of butterflies. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes by accident. Chopping lumber. Did I say that already? Not chopping lumber. I ended up chopping a lot of lumber. I, didn't I don't know why. I didn't even know you could chop lumber. No, it's honest work. I think I was too busy accidentally shooting dogs. I was getting my honest pay for honest work. Um, so that has two ways that it talks about Questlandia. One is the basically the changing of your society, which it felt like, to me, Skyrim didn't have nearly enough of. It felt like a very static world that you're going around. There's apparently, it's a world in the midst of a civil war. Not even a civil war. It's just a war, right? Because these are imperialists who've come and are I think just they're a, sort of living war. there, sort of fighting over it. Yeah. With dragons. A war against dragons. But like, you know, then you go into the town and people are doing their things. And like, it's just, does not seem like a place at war. That's, you know, the opposite of what we want for Questlandia, where the societal shifts are the central part of giant changes happening. And in Questlandia 1, when you're rolling to accomplish your own thing, you will cause your society to sometimes get a little better, most of the time get worse, as like a side effect of what's going on in your scenes. We're talking about adopting a a goal structure that's closer to Skyrim, 
where it's like, now I am chasing after a butterfly. That's my goal. I want to find this rare butterfly and capture it. And it starts to feel like that's a weird time to change your society. Yeah, and yet I don't want to lose sight of this being a game where you do see your world changing around you. And I liked the balance in Questlandia 1 of you having a single role where you're actually weighing your own private ambitions with the health of your society as a whole. It was a good feeling to be like, oh, I have a chance here to actually make a difference to the world, but I'm really invested in doing my own thing. You know, there's this really good cut scene in one of the more recent Wolfenstein games where BJ Blazkowicz is in a hospital after sustaining a head injury. He is sort of going in and out of consciousness. He is uh, incapacitated. He's being taken care of by nurses, one nurse in particular. And you watch the world dramatically change around him from his sort of position in a wheelchair not being able to speak or move. And you see, like, the Nazis come into power. You see this hospital change and eventually get shut down. And I felt like that was, like, a really powerful opening. Yeah. And I want to be able to capture that in Questlandia. Like, this, this like, shaking depth of feeling of, like, a specific place and time being being radically changed by the events around it, even if the people there are kind of, like, motionless. Yeah. But maybe that's counter to what we're talking about with small goals, or or maybe not. I mean, maybe you can be focusing on making your marinara, but I, I still do want that part of the world just, like, shifting around you. It, you know, that example brings up a whole interesting idea of time as this extra agent for making the society change, not necessarily as a result of your goal, but concurrently with it. I can imagine that you, you've you assembled your ingredients, you have the tomatoes and the oregano, and now it's time to create the sauce, and it's going to take eight months of intense experimentation and focused cooking. And so then in our role, we're rolling to see how well your marinara turns out, but also eight months of changes to your kingdom. And that gets into a lot of questions about sort of player expectation and consent around moving, you know, moving the clock forward. Yeah. Eight months. That would be a whole new thing. I I feel like an extra podcast in the works here. Well, probably we will end up talking about something like this because it's going to get into this idea of like, you know, can you jump in and out of a book? Yeah. Can you re-enter the timeline at a different place? And what does that do for other players who are really invested in that part of the story? So, And it all ties into this discussion because what we're really talking about here is the narrative arc that we want to see in our games. And the goals that you're pursuing influence that, as does the time that you're marching through. And it's not something where we have a clear answer on what we want. So a question that we're going to be dealing with in the next phase of this design, uh, how character goals interact or interface with the mechanics of the game. In Questlandia 1, 
goals were linked to mechanics because goals had obstacles. And then obstacles gave you extra dice against your roll. Yeah. In Questlandia 2, if there's this question of goals and their scope or scale, do we weight them? Do we make a goal, like, do you have to roll against more dice if your goal is harder? And then again, like, now this is making sort of value judgments on what is hard. If you killed the king in scene one and your magnum opus is now, you know, around making, like, a symphony of a marinara. Uh, <laughs> who's, who's to say which goal should be weighted more heavily? Uh, do we have... I don't think we have any answer to this. I, I actually do have an answer. You do? It should be the marinara. Well, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> but... <laughs> so then is that saying that your first goal... Then, then that feels like it gets into this kind of, like, arbitrary number shit where it's like oh your scene one goal is always worth one point yeah and i just like i don't feel like that has a lot of place in this game there's it's hard to make mechanics that aren't in tension with no well it sounded like you were gonna say something good no (laughs) with the story and just tension is the wrong word. Well, I guess tension is an okay word. Opposition. It's hard to make mechanics that don't feel like they diminish and simplify the kind of stories you can tell. You know, making a goal a one-point goal or a two-point goal or a three-point goal. Oh, big one. I know. It kind of reduces all the goals into three types, right? And you'll start ignoring what the goal is and just thinking, okay, do I want a two-pointer or a three-pointer? Like, you know, I want this to be a really nice wooden sculpture, but I don't know about three points nice. (laughs) It's like, I don't want to, you know, just melt people's faces with it. I just want (laughs) to, it just should be pretty. Um, (laughs) So this feels like a place where it's, you want to scale the mechanics back and put in narrative bookmarks of how this works, you know, where, I don't know about the word bookmark. Yeah, I was interesting and interested in the word bookmark. I wanted to hear more about that. Are you imagining, are you sort of using bookmarks as a stand-in for like whatever will represent Questlandia's 2's version of obstacles? Like yeah. Bench Benchmarks? Is that actually, is it ben- Benchmarks? I don't know what words uh, are. Maybe like an index at the end of the book or something where it says, like, to learn more about this, look here, here, and here. I'm thinking about the idea of a narrative tie-in that are linked to your goal, where you're like, I want to kill the king with these tie-ins. I want to move us to a democracy. I want to uh, be the president of that democracy. And I want to see the look on the king's son's stupid face when he learns that the king's been killed. Like, these are all things that I really want out of this goal. And then maybe other people at the table, like, you know, here are some narrative costs that might come with that. You might go to prison forever. You might never see his stupid face because he hides it under a veil. (laughs) You know, 
something like this where people are bringing their own narrative flavor to the story and making consequences that are real and can be mechanically played for, and we can try to achieve some of them, but they are not pre-written and the categories are open to interpretation of the players at the table. So I can't remember if we've talked about this yet in an episode or not, but something that had come up in one of our playtests was, you know, when you read like a classic book, I wish I could think of an example. Moby Dick. Uses Moby Dick. I don't know if Moby Dick uses the chapter structure I'm about to say, but you'll read a book and the chapters are named like in which our protagonist, boopity boop, boopity boop. Oh, this is a very like Charles Dickens kind of thing. So that would be Moby Dick. No, no that's Herman Melville. Yeah. <laughs> Bitter <laughs> enemy of tiny, Charles Dickens. Tiny, tiny Tim. That's Charles Dickens. <laughs> what did, uh, Charles, did Charles Dickens write Oliver? Yeah. Okay. All right. We've saved back on track. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if we've talked about it that in the podcast, but I think it had come up in one of the play tests as this potential way of kind of like benchmarking goals. Mm -hmm. Of like saying at the beginning of a session, this is a session in which, or heretofore in this chapter. It's a way to take goals out of characters' hands and put them in the player's hands or the junk poet's hands of saying, this isn't so much a goal of the character as something that, that will happen in this chapter of the story. This land will be scorched. It would be a very big goal for a character, but as a chapter heading, it's just it's just there. It's going to happen one way or another, right? And then, you know, a universally mind-exploding marinara sauce is concocted. <laughs> An eye-melting, yes. face-melting marinara. <laughs> <laughs> it is an idea that I like, and yet I'm constantly resisting follow- falling into, like, hero tropes and destiny tropes in this game. Yeah, this definitely gives a destiny to it. And I just, I like, I don't, I want to, I want to buck against that. I don't exactly know how, because I do like that idea. So that's a bunch of vague, meandering thoughts about how goals maybe should work in the game. For our next playtest, we'll have to turn some of those into a concrete, playable set of instructions. And that'll involve changing what we had for our last playtest, which was, it felt very off the mark to me. Yeah. For, for me, the, well, one part of those rules was being able to achieve your goal right away. Playtesting, that seemed okay. It, it told a story that I was excited to see continue, even though it did feel a bit odd. But right now, the way that goals and changing the world are tied together feels problematic. Because if you roll poorly on your shooting for your goal scene, things in the world might get worse. And then we have these other scenes that gave you bonuses for your goal. They'd give you more dice. They'd make it so you're more likely to succeed. And when you add those together, you end up with this thing where if you choose to rush for your goal and achieve it quickly... You harm the society for everybody. And that's weird. I don't want people at the table being like, no, 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 don't shoot for your goal. You're going <laughs> to heck up our whole kingdom. 
Uh, well, and this is something we've always struggled with in the design of Questlandia uh, is, you know, how much one individual person, how much say an individual person should have over how effed up the world gets. I'm trying to avoid having to mark this episode as explicit, but God, I really like the the F word. <laughs> <laughs> so you like just you just fudge up the society. You really fudge it up for everybody, for all your friends. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you're gonna have to mark it as explicit now. We went there. Yeah, you know, it's frustrating. <laughs> I'm just gonna only use F words from now on. <laughs> Frustrating because our, you know, our last playtest was really the first time we'd actually played the game. Like we yeah. put our characters in motion. They did things. Mm -hmm. They romanced walls. They scorched the sun. Got scorched by the sun. Mm -hmm. It's been a few weeks now. Yeah. Uh, but you're right. Something didn't feel right. And I had a really hard time putting my finger on what it was. And I guess that is the nature of playtesting. But here we are again, where it's like something has to change. What the heck is it? Uh, you tend to be more, you, you tend to have a better eye for this stuff than I do, I think. I'm literally just thinking of F words. <laughs> <laughs> you tend to have a better face for this stuff than I do. <laughs> tend to cook a better fondue. <laughs> <laughs> so... The friction oh. of that last session leads us to this fake facilitated discussion. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't exactly know what comes next. I honestly feel really stuck in the design. For me, I feel like there was very quickly a risk of it. It started to feel like we had pasted out to be a one shot game. Yeah. Um, the pacing felt really gonzo. The accomplishing of some of these goals revealed some really big things about the world very fast. So I want to look at what it takes to sort of like hold on to those reins. And I don't know exactly what it's going to look like. I'm thinking about ways to take the goal system and move it away from dice a little bit and towards player input which has been a kind of a thing throughout the Questlandia 2 process, has been looking for more places where players can have a, a anchor of control over even pretty fundamental mechanics of the system. So I'm thinking about things like, you know, writing down the consequences you want for your goal or your ambitions on cards and putting them into a hat. And then oh, who knows what you're going to get. Card. <laughs> like the, the idea of having an ambition and having it cook for a while so that it's not something you can totally control achieving immediately, but it is your own framework, like your own goal that makes sense to you. That's part of the story you want to tell now. And that's flexible enough to abandon and move forward. And then maybe even ties in with the story later, even if you've abandoned that goal, where then one of your ambitions pops up later in somebody else's turn where they're like, oh... Look, it's the king's son making that stupid face. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to take more time in the oven, but... But that's what it takes to make a marinara. I should have said furnace. I know. Well, I <laughs> Stovetop? <laughs> Maybe just stovetop. 
marinate, you know, marinate more time to Mar- marinate it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so with that, I think it's time to transition to your thoughts and questions. We received a number of thoughtful emails about people designing their own scenes, giving that power to the players and how it could be handled. One email from Matthew directed us towards Fall of Magic, another narrative-driven game that has a collaborative scene-building process that's just based around a based around a evocative sentence and asks a player to bring that into their scene at some point or just uses it as the title of a scene. Yeah, you know, I mean, I've played Fall of Magic only once, though, so it may be time to organize a game of Fall of Magic because I think it has some really elegant mechanics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I like games like Fall of Magic or Quiet Year that are kind of spatially located and, you know, use a location to kind of move the story around. So, yeah, it's good. Time. It's time. It's time to play some games. He also brought up in that same email the challenges of giving a mechanical hook to a player-driven scene, because you want your scene to impact the game in a special way, but you don't want to have to design the game as you go. (laughs) And that's kind of the biggest and most appealing challenge of player-made scenes for me, to give players a chance to make a scene that is mechanically distinct. It's like a special, it's not even just choose from this list of types. It's like, uh, it impacts the world or your characters in a special way that fits, you know, the narrative of the scene and the world you're in, but you don't have to rack your brain thinking of it. I don't know if that's even possible, but I really like the idea. Another message that we got, I think this one was from Emmett, that talked a little bit about the junk poet level story and this idea of um, something that I've really struggled with, which is thinking about how to tie in our, you know, like top level characters and not our in-world characters, like how to tie them back into this story. And this person was like, what if, you know, everybody is stuck in the library and you have to kind of like find your world's library to navigate your way out That's really cool because it gives this, you know, meta plot level goal that ties each of these worlds together. And it's a way to have your in-world characters step into that world's equivalent of a library. I mean, it's like, it's like the, the Dragonborn quest. It ties in the junk poets, it ties in your in-world characters. I don't know exactly how to incorporate it or what to do with it, or if that's something that we're going to do, but it was the first time that I could think of a way to kind of tie in this metaplot story and not leave it behind, which has been a worry we've had is like, are we going to forget about the junk poets? I'm not going to forget about the junk poets. <laughs> I did really like that suggestion. It's got my my wheels turning. And it reminds me of another email talking about the junk poet level, addressing, you know, the idea of what what do the junk poets take from the world they just visited and, you know have to influence their own world or the future worlds that they travel to. And the email mentioned the idea of being able to keep the kinds of scenes, like maybe one scene that you created specifically for this world, and carry it with you to another world, and redefine what that scene means in the new world. 
you know, you, it would be open to interpretation how your battle hymn scene would function in the new world. But it seems like a, a cool treasure to take with you. I really like that. You know, one of, I think, my favorite things in our Monster Hearts campaign that we play has been when a character gets to take a move from a new skin. It's like, uh, it's something you want to treat with respect. You know, it doesn't work if you do it too many times. Mm -hmm. But it kind of reminds me of that. Yeah. There's something potent about it. So all of these thoughts and emails have us excited to think about the Junk Poet some more. And maybe that looks like a battle for survival for the entire <laughs> meta plot level of this game. We'll see. Yeah. I mean, this, this input really is shaping the direction of the game because like two episodes ago, we were like, maybe we'll just get rid of the junk poets. Some of us were like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you know, with that, I mean, people have been also uh, surprisingly still sending emails that they like my three ring binders. So, ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting ruined here. If you would like to grab hold of the reins and influence the design of Questlandia 2, feel free to email us at designdocpod at gmail.com or follow us and tweet to us at designdocpod on Twitter. You can also follow us personally. I am handbandit on Twitter. And I'm Adron Novel. The Design Doc intro and outro theme was created by our friend, musician Pat King. Thank you, Pat. The Design Doc podcast is hosted by the One Shot Podcast Network. If you enjoyed Design Doc, visit oneshotpodcast.com, where you'll find other great shows like Character Creation Cast. Character Creation Cast is a discussion podcast where Amelia and Ryan create characters in multiple RPGs with prominent guests from the games community. Each month, Character Creation Cast examines the character generation process in depth for a different game with new guests each series. They always take the time to reflect on the game, its design, and what guests have to say about it. Think of it as sitting in on a great session zero every week. That sounds really fun. Maybe we should do that for Questlandia 1. I'm down. Do a little I'm collab. How do we get in touch with them? I know. <laughs> I, we should visit www.oneshotpodcast.com. I'll do that, yeah. And while we're at it, we can find other great shows like... <laughs> <laughs> so if you're liking what you... <laughs> so if you are liking what we do here, you're welcome to head over to Design Doc on iTunes and leave us a review. It really does help other people find the podcast and it makes us happy and fills us with determination. determination. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon, heroes.